Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. I think this, particularly this exclusion of women from the history of innovation, really makes us misunderstand the whole thing and, and misunderstand what drives us to innovate and create new technology. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Well, hello there, and welcome to an episode we think you'll find fascinating. Indeed. Our guest today is Swedish best-selling author on women and innovation and a financial journalist, Katrine Marsal. Katrine's two books, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner and her latest book, Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men, explore how women's roles and contributions have been systemically ignored over time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I love her books. They're really written in a fun and accessible way. And Katrine's new book shares so many interesting facts about innovation and our history. Yeah. I love the story of how suitcases didn't get wheels until the 1970s because men and luggage designers thought it would be effeminate for men to have luggage with wheels. You know, it would kind of show that they weren't strong enough to carry their own bags, but they never stopped to think about women for a moment. Crazy. I know, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's why Katrine shares how frustrated she is that we've missed out on who knows how many great inventions because there haven't been enough women involved in the process. Yeah, that's for sure. So in this fascinating discussion, you'll learn how the founder of modern economics, Adam Smith, overlooked one very important factor when he came up with his self-interest theory, which is the foundation of economics today, and what an impact that's had on women and what we're paid. How innovation history has overlooked or rewritten women's vital role in the founding of computer science and of software. How and why a company that specialized in women's underwear won the contract to make the spacesuits that took the Apollo astronauts to their history making landing on the moon. And how Katrine herself comes up with her ideas for her writing. So sit back, enjoy, and be prepared to have your eyes opened by the insightful and engaging Katrine Marcel. Katrine, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much. It's 
very exciting to have you on the show and really can't wait to sort of dive into the fascinating work and writing that you do. The way we like to start our conversations with all of our guests, and this really helps our listeners, is if you were to meet someone at a dinner party for the first time this evening, how would you describe to them what you do today briefly? Well, it depends on how much I wanted to brag in that particular situation. I guess if I was feeling modest, I'll just say I'm an author who writes about women and innovation and women and money. And I guess if I wanted to brag a bit more, I'd say I was a best-selling author on women and innovation. Whose books are being translated into 20-odd languages, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, exactly. But I mean, it, it sort of depends on the setting of the dinner party. Do you still do much journalism work these days or are you pretty much focused on your writing of books? So I have a background as a journalist and a financial journalist, probably in particular. I still work uh, for the Swedish newspaper Dagens Nyheter very happily. And then I focus on on my books. So yeah, I guess I have a lot of identity around being a journalist. Yeah. And you mentioned Sweden, and I think we're speaking to you because you've been based and live in England now. But if I'm not mistaken, you grew up in Sweden. And the way we love to kind of learn more about our guests is also to kind of go right back to the beginning. And so, you know, how would you describe your childhood growing up in Sweden? Well, so I grew up in the south of Sweden, very close to the to the Danish border. My mother was a computer programmer and my father had a bookstore and it was like a, you know, Swedish small town. How do you think growing up in Sweden shaped and influenced the sort of the subject matter that fascinates you and occupies you now in terms of feminism and women and money and innovation? So obviously the Scandinavian countries have done a lot when it comes to these topics. You know, Sweden, for example, invests, I think it's 4% of GDP into maternity and paternity leave and affordable childcare. And a lot of the things that big parts of the rest of the world want to achieve, you know, we, we have already. And that has obviously led to a lot of changes. You know, there's a famous story of the American tourist who sort of comes to Stockholm and walks around for an afternoon and then turns to her host and says, you know, hey, what's up with all the gay nannies? You know, because there are <laughs> a lot of men rolling buggies in the daytime in Stockholm in a way that, you know, you won't see even in, in London where, you know, I'm based in the UK now. So obviously, you know, a lot of things has changed. But what's so interesting and what many Swedes won't tell you, because I think we are quite invested in this, you know, we're quite proud of this idea that we are really, really good at gender equality and, and this sort of haven of, of feminism and, and all of that is that, Many of these amazing reforms have actually not translated into, you know, all of the problems being solved. I mean, the gender pay gap in Sweden is is not smaller than in sort of comparable European countries. We've never had a female prime minister, for example, and the glass ceiling actually in corporate seems to be lower in Sweden than in, in many other countries in Europe. 
Oh, and if you look at things like investment to women-owned businesses, you know, venture capital. I mean, Sweden is a big tech economy, famous sort of startup scene. But, but in Sweden, only one percent of venture capital goes to women, which is you know the same as in in the UK that have actually done less when it comes to gender equality. So, it's a bit of a mixed bag, really. I mean, there's a lot to be proud of, and I'm sure you know a lot of the cultural achievements of gender equality really shaped me as a person but in no way is it sort of perfect in Scandinavia and who from your childhood has influenced your thinking and the work that you do today the most do you think well, I mean, obviously, you know, my my parents, my father had a bookstore, so I was always working with books, sort of very familiar with the smell of books and selling books and the whole sort of business around books. And that is what I what I do in a way. I'm an author, but all of that was something that I grew up with. And I mean, I, for example, my, my latest book, which is called Mother of Invention, is, you know, that is about tech. And I guess my my mother was in the tech industry before it was called the tech industry, you know, being a, a computer programmer. And and something that, you know, I thought about a lot as sort of an, an early adult, which I guess ended up being part of the reason why I wrote this latest book is, you know, how when my mother went into computer science, it was still female dominated. And, you know, during my childhood, most of her managers in this field were were women, you know, these sort of nice, respectable Swedish women who brought me cake and, you know, presents for my sister when she was born. And that was sort of the image of tech that I grew up with, which is very, very far from kind of the, you know, Silicon Bro, <laughs> you know, idea of it that we have today. And also the industry that my mother, you know, went into in the early 80s and the one she retired from was like completely different when it came to gender. You know, it went from female dominated to extremely male dominated. And as somebody who writes about economics, you know, this was something that, you know, always fascinated me. You know, it, within my my lifetime, I'm not I'm not that old, I'm, I'm 38, this whole profession went from female to male and at the same time from not that high status to very high status, from not that highly paid to very highly paid. And this idea sort of how status and pay seems to follow men in the economy was was something that I've really thought about and I've, I've clearly written about a lot. So it must have affected me. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, that's, that's really interesting because I, I wasn't aware that particularly in Sweden or I, I maybe this is elsewhere, in, el- elsewhere in other countries that that women were really dominant in the tech industry. Yeah, I mean, the first programmers in in the world were were women. That was you know here in the UK where I I live now during the the war and after the war for quite a long time. And what's interesting, and this I actually do explore this in 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 my latest book is in in one of the chapters is. When women were doing programming, it wasn't considered to be very technical. If you look at ads for programmers and developers in in the 60s in in the US, you know, it's often sort of compared to, oh, if you're good at cooking from from recipes or if you are good at knitting from patterns, if you're good at following instructions, you could be a programmer. So it was like compared to these 
skills that were perceived to be feminine. And it is, I mean, there's a lot of truth in it. It is a lot like cooking from a recipe. Yeah. But that's not how we how we talk about it now because it has all of these sort of male connotations. And one of the big arguments in my book, Mother of Invention, is that, you know, throughout history, what women have done has almost never been considered to be tech or technology. And that has then become something that has sort of hurt women financially, because if something, if like a skill or a job is considered to be technical, then that's also a reason for it to be very well paid. But what women do is very often, and what women excel at is often you know, framed as a natural thing. And if something is natural, you know, it comes natural to you. You're naturally a very good computer programmer because you're good at following recipes because you're a woman. Then sort of the economic logic dictates that it shouldn't be paid that much either. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure listeners are very much getting the feeling that the book is all about how society, frankly, shortchanged itself by ignoring women's contribution to innovation. And, you know, I think an example would be really great here. You know, I love the suitcase example you share in the book. Could you share that briefly for our listeners now? Yeah, so that's how the book starts, because it's all about innovation and how innovation has been held back by our sort of ideas about gender and, and by sexism, really. And so I started by, you know, talking about the rolling suitcase, which is this sort of classic mystery of innovation that many economists have thought about, you know, because we managed to put two men on the, on the moon before we figured out that suitcases you know, could have <laughs> wheels. And that's, you know, the first patent, you know, successful commercial patent for a suitcase with wheels was in the US in 1972. The inventor was called Bernard Sadov. And really, this product didn't really go mainstream until the late 1980s. It's just been this sort of strange thing. And lots of people, you know, lots of very clever people have thought about it. You know, how could this be? You know, the technology of the wheel was 5,000 years old at the time. And, you know, the modern suitcase had existed since the late 1800s. Why couldn't we sort of see that it was a great thing to just put these two things together, you know, wheels and suitcases? And I was looking into this in the sort of research process for this book, which was going to be on, on women and innovation. And suddenly I just stumbled upon the, the answer, which was both surprising and not surprising in the way that it actually has to do with gender. There were, in fact, suitcases with wheels, you know, well before 1972, but there were all these sort of niche products for women. And there was this very sort of strong perception that no man would ever roll a suitcase <laughs> because it's just unmanly. Uh, men have to sort of prove their masculinity by carrying. And even after the, the suitcase with wheels was, was invented in the 1970s, at first, you know, American department stores didn't want to sell it for this reason. They thought, you know, there, there wasn't a market for this. Men would never buy it. And women, well, they might buy it, but they don't travel alone anyway. Uh, you know, if a woman travels, she will do it with a man who will have to carry her suitcase for her. And this was really what sort of held back this innovation and sort of answers this classic mystery of innovation. And that's where I wanted to start the book, because it's it's a very concrete 
project, isn't it? We all have a relationship to it. It's something that obviously eventually went on to disrupt the whole global luggage industry. You know, it's just to show how powerful our ideas about male and female and gender is and how it really can hold, you know, innovations that we now take for granted back for a very long time. Fascinating. I'd love to take you back to your first book, which uh, you actually wrote back in 2011 called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And my father actually gave that to me a couple of years ago. But, you know, it's been 10 years now since you wrote that book and the essence of that book, I'm not going to do its service, but, you know, you're really illustrating that Adam Smith, who was the father of the economic thought and thinking that goes into all of our sort of economic structures and societal structures today, really did not identify the unpaid work and care that happens. And so all of the people who've followed that operated on his sort of summary of acting in self-interest. It's been 10 years since you pointed this out in the book. How frustrated or pleased are you with the change that has happened to how we think about all this unpaid work that goes on in society that just gets ignored? You know, were you expecting more change? I mean, I was very happily surprised by, you know, how well that book did and, you know, and how it sort of really, you know, went out into the into the world. But but yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the book is all about how economics forgot about women and how we all suffer because of that. So Adam Smith was the founding father of, of economics. And in 1776, he sort of ask the founding question of economics, which is, how do you get your dinner? That's the question he asked in his big book, The Wealth of Nation, which ended up sort of being, you know, kind of the founding text of, of economics. And it's a, you know, it's a good economic question. You know, we take it for granted that we can go to the store and there will be food there and, you know, staff there and the whole system will kind of work. And what he was interested in was, you know, what keeps all of these things together. And his very famous answer to this question, you know, how do you get your dinner was, you know, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that you get your dinner. It's from them serving their own self-interest. So is this whole idea that, you know, the economy is driven on self-interest and economists, obviously, that came after him. I mean, Adam Smith himself probably would have been horrified by how much emphasis, you know, economics put on self-interest eventually. And I tell this story and then I say, well, you know, let's let's take the founding question of economics seriously. You know, how how did Adam Smith get his dinner? And, you know, he lived with his mother most of most of his life and she looked after the household for him and she you know she's the part of the answer how he got his dinner that he ignores because you know did she look after him and make sure he ate and 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 got his dinner out of self-interest like the butcher and the brewer and the baker that he talks about at length well probably not partly maybe but she also did what she did for all of these other reasons that people do things in in the economy, you know, she loved him, she cared for him, she felt an obligation, maybe she felt guilt. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why we do what we do in the economy than just self-interest. 
And he forgot about them because he forgot about his mum. And the, you know, the consequences of that is that a lot of the unpaid work that particularly women do with care and around the home is still not counted in GDP. It's not considered to be work in, you know, economic terms. And it's not considered to be something that contributes to our wealth of nations. Super fascinating. And I'm really curious to know, what do you think the economy would look like today if Adam Smith's self-interest point hadn't been taken so literally? Yes. I mean, I you know, obviously very, very different. Well, I think there'd be a much smaller gender pay gap. Uh, I mean, I think the discussion around, in many ways, the most fundamental economic things that every society needs to solve are things like, you know, what balance do we have between care work and other types of work? You know, who's going to look after the children and how? How are we going to value that? I think that would have been very different. And I also think, I mean, with the gender pay gap, I mean, the main reason why women in the world earn less than men is because women have specialized into or been forced to, but women tend to end up in care professions a lot more. And those tend to be very, very severely undervalued in almost every economy in the world. You know, and I think most people find it crazy that, you know, nothing wrong with management consultants, but, you know, why is it like, why should they earn so much more than a, you know, critical care nurse or somebody in elderly care? And I think if you really sit down with with ordinary people and talk about these things and these economic choices we've made based a lot on how we devalue care because we see it as feminine, you know, they would see it quite differently from from how it is today. And I think if Adam Smith had not forgotten about his his mother, you know, those things would have had an effect in a way they haven't. Don't forget about your mother. This is <laughs> no. a very, very important <laughs> lesson. That I'd like to sort of segue a little bit into how you innovate yourself, you know, and how you think about innovation. And obviously, as a writer, you you are an innovator because you're coming up with insights and you're coming up with new ways to see things. How do you think about your process of innovation? What do you do? That's a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Let me think. I Well, I think a lot of innovation is sort of bringing together things that are not normally brought together and then kind of see what happens like you take idea that comes from one sphere and idb that comes from another sphere and you put them together and that kind of becomes something new so i guess for me it's it's really about reading very widely i mean i i'm quite proudly somebody who will read both you know quite advanced academic papers and like the gossip columns <laughs> <laughs> and i think there's you know so much value to you know you can sort of suddenly you see these connections or you can bring things together i think why people you know like to read my books is that i have developed a way of writing about you know economics in a way that is very you know, fun and, and accessible to people who are, you know, not normally reading a lot of Wall Street Journal, or maybe they are, but, but you know, like I will sort of, you know, discuss the Kardashians in, you know, connection to different theories on consumption and women, or and that certainly comes from sort of reading very widely and looking for things in, in lots of different places. 
I really like that. And I think there's not enough going on in terms of bringing different, like totally different perspectives, views of the world, areas together. Because I think that once, when you do do that, you actually do create absolutely new ideas. And that's why I find it so frustrating also, you know, how shut out women are from innovation, you know, in, in large parts of the world. It's like because it's so intuitive to most of us that innovation happens when different perspectives meet. But still, you know, 99% of all venture capital goes to men and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. What examples have you found where having women's voices, having women around the table to create innovation has actually made a, a big difference? Well, one really fun example that I actually personally love, which is which is in the, the book Mother of Invention, is is about the spacesuits that Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz Aldrin wore, wore to the moon during the first moon landing. I mean, I love that story because it's it was this technological problem, like a really difficult one. You know, we're sending humans to the moon. You know, the human body is not made for surviving in space. You know, what what should we wear? And the company that ended up winning this big contract was a, you know, very unexpected company. It was a, a company specialized in the production of women's underwear. And they were able to win this contract because they were the only one that could provide, you know, a technical solution that actually passed the tests that prototypes had to pass. Their idea was, you know, that these suits, you know, they should be soft. There were a lot of other suits created by companies more from the traditional military sphere who were, you know, hard, like, you know, armor like moon suits. And they just they just didn't work. And this company had enormous technical skill. So they had technological skill when it came to soft materials. Soft materials were the solution to this problem. And these suits that are in many ways the iconic, you know, and all the iconic images, you know, you see Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in, in these white soft suits, and they were hand-sewn by female seamstresses, basically moved from the bra production into spacesuit production. And I go into more, you know, you know, the whole story and this company and how they were able to be this innovative and how they really kind of listened to these seamstresses and took their technological knowledge. Because, of course, sewing is technology. We just don't see it as technology because it's, you know, it's been associated with women in, in large parts of the world. And, you know, the engineers at this company who were almost exclusively men, this was the 1960s, they all took sewing lessons for months at a time. And this is a, such a lovely example of of a company that did manage to innovate and solve this incredibly complex problem because they were able to not look down on women's skills or women's traditional skills when it came to sewing and listen to these women with everything they knew. And, you know, and that basically took us to the moon, literally. I love that story. I know your research and reading has very much been focused on the gender aspect and how women in particular have been overlooked. But what about broader diversity? Because we are all reading and sort of intuitively know that genuine diversity is probably going to be the best outcome for innovation. 
Yes, that's very much the research that's that's coming out is very much showing it. And I think it's it's intuitive, right? You know, different perspectives meet, you know, that's when new things happen. That's incredibly important. And I'm very, very happy that more and more people are campaigning for this and advocating for this and writing about this. But my, I'm personally, you know, focused on the gender aspect, also because I think when it comes to technology, it goes very, very deep. Because there's this whole, you know, throughout economic history, the things that women have done have almost never been considered to be technology. You know, we talk about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, but we could as well have talked about the Ceramics Age or, you know, the Weaving Age. But weaving or ceramics or pottery are not considered to be technology because, you know, that's associated with with women. And so we end up with this sort of history of innovation that we look back at. And from it, it appears that all of the important innovations were created by men. And we're basically looking at it and as women studying our own absence, that's just wrong. And it makes us, I think this exclusion of women, particularly from this narrative of innovation and technology makes us misunderstand ourselves and our own history in a way that's actually really bad for the economy at the moment. I think it makes us overemphasize, you know, values like disrupting and crushing and <laughs> all of these sort of things that are coded as as masculine. That's still how, you know, a lot of people talk in the startup sphere. I think this, particularly this exclusion of women from the history of innovation really makes us misunderstand the whole thing and, and misunderstand what drives us to innovate and create new technology. Maybe it isn't just this will to dominate and conquer the world around us. Maybe it's much more complex. And I think sort of bringing women back into this story also really brings back the hope that it can be different. And yeah, and that's why I, I'm just really passionate about it. Oh, I love that. And we are as well. It's what this whole podcast is about, is shining the light on what women are doing, particularly in technology areas, because they're going to have such an influence on our future society and everything for sure. What can we do as individuals to try and help accelerate this inclusion aspect and getting more funds to female entrepreneurs in a VC sense or just changing and expanding that narrative to have the women's point of view taken into account more? Yeah, I mean, I think there needs to be a lot of financial innovation happening, you know, to find new ways of getting capital to women with ideas. And then that's a big task. I mean, I'm, I know you are both, you know, activators in, in an organization called CEO, and I am as well. And that's one example yes. of an organization, you know, trying to sort of innovate in this field of finance and, you know, women's problem when it comes to access to capital in the economy. So, I mean, that's certainly something I can recommend if people want to join that or, or a similar project. But then I also think that we do need to talk about innovation and technology 
differently you know with you know i've been for example working with the technological museum in in stockholm around some of these things and you know they're obviously very interested in why do they portray things the way they do because that has a huge impact on children you know people will take their kids to this museum and you know hear about the bronze age and the iron age and big men with big tools and that's innovation and you know and i i think we need to change how we tell those stories or or even I mean, a lot of people are, you know, are not aware even that, you know, computer science used to be female dominated and women basically invented software. And today we we feel that we need to have sort of big women in tech conferences where with lots of pink balloons in order to attract women into these parts of the economy. But women basically created them. And we've just forgotten that part of the of the story. And it's it's recent. I mean, again, I'm 38 years old. I remember when when computer science was still dominated by women. I guess we have a lot of things to do to change these things. We certainly do. One thing I'm I'm really curious about is I would imagine that some of the ideas in your books um, have been quite controversial, particularly for men. What kind of pushback have you had? I've not had that much yet. Yeah, uh, yet. <laughs> so the book, it came out in Sweden in October 2020, and it did really well there. Commercially became a bestseller. And, you know, it's due to be translated to quite a few languages. And it's just out in like UK, Australia, New Zealand, India. And then US and Canada is coming in later this autumn and then more languages next year. So... So I don't know. I mean, I can really only speak to Sweden so far, which is I was really surprised by how many male engineers read the book and really <laughs> liked it. I didn't think that would be sort of my core market that would sort of take the book onto some kind of bestseller chart. But it really did. You know, that was awesome. And I wasn't expecting it. So I didn't receive that much pushback. I've received more pushback probably when I've been out, you know, before the book came out, I've been giving keynotes on these topics to businesses. And there will almost always be, you know, somebody in the audience or somebody that comes up to me afterwards and sort of says that, well, you know, I hear what you say, but men really have better ideas, you know, when it comes to certain things than women. And we just need to accept that. So I think that these things are still very much there. But people, when they say things like that, they will almost always be sort of like, you know, very polite and in a suit. But that's almost more worrying to me because that means that these ideas still really reign in, you know, within the business community in a way that's very problematic. We're just going to have to keep you chained to your desk to keep writing more books <laughs> like this. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, Katrine, we are getting towards the end of our interview and we always like to ask our guests at this moment to take yourself back to when you were 30, which is, you know, eight years ago. <laughs> what advice would you give to yourself if you could go back? Oh, that's a, that's another very good question. Yeah, I guess probably patience. You know, you I wanted to do everything and change everything immediately and 
I mean, this is it's a cliche, but, you know, everybody knows that, you know, we are all sort of overestimate what we can achieve in in like a year and underestimate what we can achieve in, in a decade. And I think that's so true. And I just think sort of getting older is like the best gift ever. I just love it. <laughs> I mean, so far, I'm only 38, but I really feel that I become so much better and wiser and you know I can't wait for the version of me that's sort of 75 and hopefully still writing books and you know all the things that she will know and hopefully be able to to share with with the world yeah well we can't wait as well because we I think you're going to make a lot of change you know you're in it for the long game which is great to hear well it's been a really really fascinating conversation Katrine thank you so much where can our listeners go to find out more about you and more about your books yes the book is available in the UK, Australia, New Zealand and India in English. If you're in the US or Canada, you can pre-order it. But the best way is probably to go on my website. It's katrinemarsal.com and there you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, which is called The Wealth of Women and it's completely free. And then you'll get an email from me every Thursday with like a quick, hopefully funny take on business and economics from this sort of feminist perspective. So yeah, I'd love for listeners to join that. Fantastic. Well, we'll put the details of that on our show notes and we'll be sure to sign up ourselves. So with that, thank you again. We really love the work that you're doing. Please keep patience, keep going, <laughs> keep doing what you do and making the change in the world that we all need. Thanks so much, Katrine. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so glad that Katrine is shining a spotlight on these massive oversights in our economy and typical innovation approaches. Yeah, me too. And, you know, she and author Caroline Criado Perez are making such a valuable contribution to raising awareness that women make up, golly, 50% of the market. No, they don't, do they? <laughs> Apparently. And, you know, maybe women should be thought of and involved a lot more than they currently are. That's for sure. Talk about the understatement of the century. You know, look at the crazy low percentage of VC, venture capital funding, that goes to female founders. And yet recent research by the Boston Consulting Group has shown that female-founded companies gave their investors materially better financial returns. Yeah, and I'm not surprised by that. You know, it's why, as Katrine mentioned, she and you and I are Activator Investors in CEO, a global organisation all about funding and supporting women working on businesses that tackle pressing problems. Yeah, if you're interested to learn more about that, we'll put a link to CEO on our show notes page for this episode. And you can also listen to our earlier episode with the CEO of CEO, Vicky Saunders. Now, by the way, that is not easy to say. CEO, CEO. That's <laughs> well, that's this episode done and dusted. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Have a great rest of your week and have fun. Ciao for now. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. 
Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered.